It's I on Real Estate on AM 970. The answer. This is I on Real Estate, your premier source for real estate information. From the heart of New York City and the tri-state area to the most active real estate hotspots across America. Keeping you plugged in to the latest real estate market trends. From mortgage news and legal developments to everything you need to know about buying or selling a property. Benefited by the advice of the experts. Now, here's the host of I on Real Estate, the vice chair of Douglas Elliman, Dottie Herman. Hi, and good afternoon. We're back with now Stephen Ebert and Ebert. And we were talking, Stephen, about equity and, you know, whether you bought 10 years ago, 20 years ago, or the last years, um, home equity hit a record of $27.8 trillion. So the question to people is, what should you do with all that equity that you're sitting on? Should you capitalize on record high home prices by selling and purchasing another home? Or should you sell and rent instead? What about tapping that equity via cash out refinance or home equity line of credit and use that to improve your home? Or should you buy a vacation home or even what we're going to talk about later, a tiny home? Um, and again, Obviously, your decision depends upon your personal financial situation and your risk tolerance. Uh, And you don't, under any circumstances, remember that any loan on your your primary residence um, that's used as collateral, um, that if you can't make the payments, you could lose your home. What are your clients talking to you about? What do you see them doing? What is, and again, every situation is somewhat different. But with all that's going on today and with so much equity, um, what, what, what are your views on that? Or what are you hearing? Or what are your clients thinking? Sure, Dottie. Um, you know, it's a very confusing time for people because there's a lot of mixed messages, I think, that are going out there. On the one hand, you're seeing a very strong demand for, for good properties. Um, on, and you're also seeing um, buyers wanting to take advantage of rates before they go up even higher, which, which seems to be the case. Right, um, that's what they said. Starting... said. they're going to go up. Yeah, no, I, I think what you're, what's interesting is I think you're going to see mixed messages, a short-term trend and a long-term trend, right? You know, on the one hand, normally you see as a longer-term trend is that when rates go up, that there might be some, a little bit of softening in the market um, for sellers. But I think in the short on the short term, you're going to actually still see not much has changed, and I think there's a few reasons behind it. Number one, the market has been white hot, um, and so sellers have had an opportunity to really run the show. Now, obviously, we're speaking general trends. You can't speak right. to every single house. You can't speak to every neighborhood, and I'm talking about every trend. You know, trends generally. So. Of course, if you look around, you're going to say, well, that house hasn't sold and it's been on for a year and a half. Of course, there are exceptions and submarkets and so forth. But as a general trend, it's been white hot. What I'm seeing is, I think, in the short term, not much of a change because particularly in the city, right, you're seeing a massive increase in rents. So people are still like, well, if my alternative is to rent versus buying, even with the rates going up, it's a better deal still to buy. And if you believe that, wait a minute, I'm getting a rate 
I'll say in the fives, obviously it depends your term, if it's adjustable or fixed, right? You're seeing some cross into the sixes on rate. Historically, that's still a great rate. Obviously, if you were looking a year ago and you saw maybe I can get a 3% 30-year fix and now it's a 6%, that doesn't feel great. But historically, it's still a great rate. So people are saying, you know, how many times have I missed this, this window? And are we now in an era where there's going to be a relatively permanent increase, right? If we think about the time period in which we're having these extraordinarily low rates, you have to go back to the time period when Eisenhower was president, right? You're talking about the immediate aftermath of World War II was the last time you had rates comparable that we've had to the last few years. So, you know, if people say, well, wait a minute, if there is an adjustment, I also remember what happened under Carter when rates were hitting 20%. I'm still getting a great deal. Let me lock that in, right? So you're going to see, I think, an increasing short-term demand from buyers. I think what you're also going to see from some sellers are saying, you know, the market's been white hot. Maybe the market is shifting to red hot for the seller, right? Still very good. Not as good, but still very, very good. And I think what Absolutely. you're starting to see now is exactly that effect of inventory starting to increase to an appropriate level, right? Inventory, everyone has always complained. Part of the problem is for sellers is if they sell their property, where are they going to go to? What we needed something was to break up the logjam. So I think what you're going to start seeing is a better equilibrium between buyers and sellers approaching over the course of the year. And you know what? It's okay if a property sits on the market a little bit. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a sensible thing. People plan, test the market, uh, and accordingly. So I, I think actually we're going to get to a little bit more of a healthier market um, because you can't always have double-digit appreciation. You can't always have the market one-sided because at a certain point, People will get priced out or they'll get frustrated. So I think overall it's a little bit healthier. Um, obviously, when we see a short-term increase that we have, that's always unsettling. Um, but I think overall it's going to be just fine. Now, Steve, how do you think this affected the stock market and crypto? I mean, do you think they're all related or they're entirely different? Well, I want to separate stock market from crypto because I, I think you're hitting a very important trend. I think the impact of the stock market is a much bigger cause of concern than rates going up. Okay, and I want to say that one more time. I think the stock market going down is a much bigger impact on the real estate market for residential than I think mortgage rates going up. And here's why. People still need to have reserves. They need to have liquidity. They've had money saved up for a down payment. And now all of a sudden, if let's say they had their portfolio go down 15%, that was an important piece of having the down payment and having the liquidity. So I think that is significantly more unsettling than the rates going up a little bit in the short term. And by the way, Dot, I want to put something out there, um, and at the cost of being maybe even slightly repetitive to some of the points that Ace made on it, but it's such an important one that people need to know this. When the Federal Reserve increases what's called the Fed funds rate, right? You know, everyone talks about, oh my goodness, the Federal Reserve raised the rate. 
Has anyone ever gotten a Federal Reserve loan? Well, of course not, because no. they're the bank for the banks, right? This is the short-term rate that they lend to banks to have the necessary liquidity to operate. So I want to point out something very, very important. The federal funds rate, when you adjust it, is a short-term metric. It is not a long-term metric. The thing to really watch to see where rates move is the 10-year U.S. Treasury. Are those values and yield rates, where are they going? And that's the long-term rate where ultimately mortgage is modeled off of. Now, we do care about the short-term rate because it has a feedback effect into the long-term rates. But I want to also be very clear, there's other trends that are going on. It's not just what did the Federal Reserve decide to do. Um, and, and this gets into what Ace was talking about, where maybe they're raising it now and then they'll drop it again. Right now, we're seeing a confusing time period. And what's interesting yes. is Ace, yeah, a little bit of a confusing time period. And I'll, and I'll say, if people are interested in economic history, which, you know, maybe there's not a, a big audience for that. Look at what happened in the early 80s. When Ronald Reagan became president, he, for a period of time, inherited Paul Volcker, who is the Federal Reserve chairman. And if you see, there was conflicting policies of economic growth versus stagflation fighting. And if you look at some of the literature from 40 years ago, I, I think you're going to see some of the same conflicts coming up between Federal Reserve on the one side setting monetary policy and the elected government setting economic and fiscal policy. So that's, I think, the key to me to watch. Are they in sync together? Are they in conflict? Because that's going to have, um, I think, a bigger driver ultimately. Right, but they're doing this all, of course, to curb inflation. Right, and it's kind of a, 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 a it's kind of a, a you've got to carefully balance it. I mean, I, I, you know, I, I somebody sent me a, a text with I don't, hopefully I don't know if it, it was the gas prices in the city. What are they up to? They were kind of ridiculous. I mean, I you're, mean you're, uh, you're getting you're going to get close to seven percent, and we haven't seen the big summer driving months. And, you know, usually during the summer, there's a little bit, when people do driving vacations, there's a little bit of an increase. Okay, but someone here's a great me, example. Steve, I, I can't verify yep. this because this was a text to me, but someone sent me, um, and it said, it, it's a pump in the city, and it says regular 735, special 765, and super 795. Could that be possible? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It wouldn't, wouldn't surprise me if you see some. Um and and diesel's going to be always a little bit more on top of that. And and diesel effects are are the the are, are fleets for trucks and delivery of those goods. So that's going to be a pressure point. I mean, look, you, you I mean, here here is the problem. Part of it is you can't send mixed signals, right? You know, you don't want to send mixed signals when you're buying and selling stuff. You don't want to send mixed signals when you're dating somebody. You don't want to send mixed signals when you're running an economy. And, you know, there's right now every conflicting signal that you can see. We want to reduce fossil fuel usage. Okay, we're hearing that out of the government. We want to change yes. building materials. We're hearing that. But wait a minute, we don't have enough. This is a terrible way to run the economy, and it's going to affect prices because 
there are completely conflicting signals going oh, on right Steve, now. Um, you know what I just heard? I don't yeah. know if it's true, but they were talking about the electric cars that they're pushing. And they said that they're very dangerous. They could, they, with the electricity, you could get electrocuted. They don't have enough people that know how to fix those cars. If you would get flooded, something with the electricity could, I mean, it was a whole host of things that they had that they haven't even really figured that all out yet. I well, feel like we're all over the map. We are, I think we are all over the map. And, you know, I'll tell you something else. Obviously, I can't speak to car safety. Um, but here's what I can say. These are very expensive, right? I mean, we were looking at a three-row SUV. I'll talk to you personally, you know, for ourselves. So we went, we looked around. Right. But the, uh, and some of these cars are six-figure cars. I mean, honestly, in some parts of the country, you can buy a starter home for less than some of these electric cars. That doesn't hurt. And getting a $5,000 tax credit doesn't make it affordable. It's complete. And, and by the way, how long are these cars going to last? I mean, you buy a traditional combustion engine car, you sort of have a sense how long it can last, more or less. What's the resale market in an electric car? Don't know. You know, and, and it's very... So, but the other thing is, that, so there's sort of the economic side of it. You know, it's obviously very interesting, um, but it, it, it's in a definitely issue out there. But the other thing is this. If you add more standards to things, you make them more expensive. And for example, right, if you're going to require that you have different technologies in the construction trades to build, if you're going to require different energy systems in buildings, and I get what they're trying to do and I appreciate it. We all need to be good stewards of the environment. We all need to make things better. And, that, and that's great. But if, if it's not ready yet, then what you're going to do is you're going to increase the cost and make it less affordable. You know, I always give the example of the iPad versus the Newton. Do you remember the Newton? A lot of people don't. They're, I don't. Apple came out. Apple came out with this very interesting device. I don't know, 25 years ago, and it was the precursor to the iPad. It was like an iPad. It was very neat, and it was economically a disaster. The reason is you didn't have wireless technology at the time. You didn't have Bluetooth. You didn't have wireless headphones. You didn't have the infrastructure around it. I mean, think about it. If you built an iPad today, you didn't have cell service, right? Think about if you didn't have people used to streaming, if you didn't have all those things that go along that makes the iPad interesting. Well, the Newton came out ahead of its time. So right now, we have a lot of really interesting things out there, but we need to have a conversation about doing it in an economically viable way. We need to understand that when you get an electric car and maybe there's no exhaust coming out of the tailpipe, which is great, um, what is the environmental and national security risk of mining cobalt and nickel and lithium to actually make the batteries? And what are those environmental costs? Because we're not seeing the real cost of that production. And so we're getting there. We have a lot of very interesting technologies emerging, but it's not fully there yet. And the same thing, obviously, in real estate construction. You're seeing all sorts of very interesting innovations. Some requirements are terrific about water usage and reusage, um, which are very practical to do, but some are not quite there yet. I know. It's just so, 
it's, there's so many things going on, and there's so many, like, kind of things that are, you know, look, your best guess. I mean, there's no certain way of knowing, but I'm looking at everything that's going on, and I'm looking at the rents, which are astronomical. I'm looking at the city, and, boy, the city came back a lot quicker. Yes, there were some casualties. I was walking down Madison Avenue the other day, and I, I saw so many small stores that went out, but... The traffic is back. The hotels are busy again, and we don't even have foreigners here yet. It's mostly people that are from the states coming. I mean, when foreigners come back, we'll even be crazier. And the prices are up across the country. So um, now we have inflation. So obviously the interest rates, they're trying to raise them to curb inflation, but that's a, 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 a fine balance, okay? And... Then I look at the stock market, and look, I think you're correct. Everyone I know is kind of freaked out. And if you are not, if you're in the market and you and you don't need that money right now, that's one thing. But what about the people that are retiring on some of those funds? Well, that you're hitting a few uh, incredibly important points. One for seniors: Have they really seen what we call a cola cost of living adjustment? in, let's say, Social Security, right? Have they seen that to match up with inflation? I don't think they've really seen that yet. And when you're no. seeing the folks who are on those fixed incomes, and that's very important, but, but here's sort of the catch-22. The catch-22 is that as we're raising these interest rates, what does that also mean? If your mortgage rate went up, guess what? The interest that our government is going to have to pay on new debt issued, and unfortunately, many countries, including the U.S., are in deficit spending mode, so their debt's increasing. That means the interest payments that they're going to have to pay in the future when they refinance that debt goes up. So we have a very important balancing act that the government needs to put on because what happens is if the budget is X dollars, right, let's say our budget is should be in the neighborhood – of around $4 trillion on the federal level. Forget about even state, county, local, municipal, right? And if debt increases, you have to make those debt payments. So what could happen is the government has to spend more money on debt payments, which doesn't give one penny of goods or services towards the public. So it's a very fine line. And I think the government's, and it's not just the U.S. You know, people talk about China. The rate of debt increase in China is dwarfing the rate of debt increase in the United States. You know, it's one of those stories that's not so talked about. You know, this debt issue is really a global sovereign issue. It's not just one country. Um, but that's also going to be a burden on taxpayers. And so I think there needs to be a better economic discussion of putting all these items together because it's all going to tie in. If you can't make things affordable for people, they're not going to buy it. And we need to be very careful about it. But also conversely, and this is why it's so confusing for people, builders are not building enough housing units. If you look nationally, oh, I know. they are not able to keep up with the demand there. Can you can you next week follow up on this? It's such an important topic, and unfortunately, like our time is kind of getting slow. But I... There's so many different options, and you're so brilliant. I just love to hear what your thoughts are on.
If you love Broadway, movies, and music, then tune in to Broadway at the Russian Tea Room, Sunday afternoons at 5. Host Rob Taub interviews the biggest stars, writers, and directors, plus film and theater critics, along with people behind the scenes, from doctors and fitness experts to casting directors, stagehands, and dressers. It's the only show of its kind, and it's right here on AM 970, The Answer. Freehold Mitsubishi in Freehold Township, New Jersey, is proud to be an automotive leader in our area and sponsor of the Arthur Idala Power Hour. After driving ambition for 40 years in the United States, we believe Mitsubishi Motors now launches its most exciting lineup ever. Get thunderstruck by the all-new 2022 Mitsubishi Outlander. Get high style without the high price, plus an industry-leading 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain limited warranty. Choose from a wide selection of trim levels in either front-wheel drive or all-wheel control, all featuring the flexibility of third-row seating. With special finance and lease programs, you'll be sure to find just the right Mitsubishi Outlander for you. Visit Freehold Mitsubishi today. Just a short ride from anywhere in the metro tri-state area. Visit FreeholdMitsubishi.com. That's FreeholdMitsubishi.com. Or call 732-863-2788. 732-863-2788. Freehold Mitsubishi. Spring means new beginnings and growth. So let's get your business's seeds planted with Salem Surround. Let us help your website bring you the leads your business needs to thrive. Let's make sure people find you faster and easier on the web. Our amazing team of media strategists are here to serve you with boots on the ground and real-world expertise. We live right here and know the communities you're trying to reach. We're media strategists, and we're very, very good at what we do. So let's grow together. Visit SalemSurroundNewYork.com. The Russian Tea Room is a treasured, globally renowned cultural institution where people of all ages and backgrounds have been having unforgettable dining and celebratory experiences for 95 years. Founded by the Russian Imperial Ballet in 1927, this beloved establishment remains a sanctuary of fine cuisine and elegance and a bastion of delectable, decadent, glamorous fun. Join them for a luxurious, world-class experience of unparalleled quality and exceptional value. Located slightly to the left of Carnegie Hall, six minutes and 23 seconds from Lincoln Center and a stone's throw from Broadway, call 212-581-7100. That's 212-581-7100. Mention Rob Taub and Broadway at the Russian Tea Room for a free drink with dinner. 150 West 57th Street between 6th and 7th Avenues. RussianTeaRoomNYC.com. That's RussianTeaRoomNYC.com. Continuing with Eye on Real Estate, your premier source for real estate information. Here's the host of Eye on Real Estate, the vice chair of Douglas Elliman, Dottie Herman. I will back, and I want to make sure that you uh, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And if you want to receive my monthly newsletter, it's free, www.dottieherman.com. So be sure to sign up for it. I am very excited. Um, to have our special guest today, Betsy Barbo, and we were talking about tiny houses, and I thought, you know, I actually did shows on TV on it, and uh, I said at the beginning of the show, have you ever thought about selling your big house and moving into a dwelling that's 400 square feet or less? And I'm not an expert on tiny houses, but I do have one, Betsy. 
Thank you for being on our show. Tell us about tiny yes. houses. Okay, can you hear me okay? Yes, perfectly. Great. Great. Well, I'm I'm really honored to be here today and um I wouldn't exactly call myself an expert. I do some consulting and I've lived in a tiny house myself for 3 years. Um, and I've been active both in the, my local level and then in the tiny house movement nationally and actually internationally as well. So I can certainly answer some questions. Um, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm really excited that you guys are covering this in the real estate domain because a lot of the important questions that you have to ask about tiny living have to do with real estate. <laughs> so, um, uh, so where would you like to go first? Well, first of all, listen, you know, as I say, this show talks everything real estate, and there's different strokes for different folks. I happened to probably a year ago see something on TV where they had a tiny house, and I actually saw one where they had, you know, everything condensed, where like the, the maybe the bed went into the, the wall, and then the dining room table came out of the wall, and actually... To, you know, and some people are, you know, look, the economy is great. Things are slowing down. Some people want to kind of take a break. Some people want to live a little bit not on high on the hog. And the pandemic has changed a lot. Some people have talked about, asked me about tiny houses, and I'm not an expert as far as an investment goes. Can they rent them? Um, can are they permanent structures, or can you put them on a, uh, like maybe like a U-Haul? Can you can you move them around? So, what is your experience with them? Do people do both? Do they put it on regular property, or do they make it, you know, so that it's movable? Yes, that's that's a good, a very good place to start. So basically, um, it it depends. Um, on a number of factors. The first factor would be where the property is. It, it's not whether you own it or not, because um, that's, that doesn't really matter. <laughs> um, but it's where the property is, and then what the codes are for that property. That includes the building codes and the zoning codes. Okay. So, um, and it also depends then, ironically, on whether those codes are enforced or not, because oftentimes we find, especially in more rural areas, that they might have codes on the book, but on the books, but they're willing, since it's a rural area and as long as the neighbors don't complain, you know, that people are actually able to to have um, a tiny house on their property and live in it. Um, so the next thing, though, is what kind of house you're talking about. Um, size uh, can can matter. There's oftentimes a minimum size allowable, especially if you're going to use it for a primary residence. Um, and also then, was the house built and is it maintained in adherence with building codes? So, and that has to do with all sorts of things like, is the house been certified by third-party inspectors? Um, what codes or standards uh, what were used for the build of the house? Um, and then the fourth thing is what you want to do with the house. So do you want to live in it full time? Do you want to rent it to somebody else? Do you want to have a family member in it and you are functioning as a caregiver for that family member? So all of those different things are considerations for whether you're allowed to have your house on, on private property or, you know, a friend's 
house, you know, a friend's property next to um, their house or whatever. Can you put a tiny house? I mean, again, it all depends. But can you, if 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 the zoning allowed it, and you had enough property, would it be possible to have a tiny house on, like, say, somebody had two acres, if the zoning allowed it? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, listen, we've got tiny houses. Um, we're, we we talk density in terms of even on a third of an acre, you could comfortably have several tiny houses, and they'd each have their nice uh, little site. So. Um, so you also asked about whether they can move or not, and this comes into that conversation because if it's a movable tiny house, then then obviously it can be moved. <laughs> um, if it's a tiny house on a fixed foundation, um, like kind of what we would consider a normal house, then you know that's different too. And again, the codes are going to um, determine whether that's allowed or not. You know, I again, no one can predict the future. But I see this as becoming, I don't know that it's mainstream yet, but I see this as becoming popular. For example, I see many uses of it. I see, well, one, maybe I have a teenage child who, you know, wants a little privacy, and I put a little tiny house for him, or I have a mother-in-law or a mother that I want, you know, that's maybe, you know, aging, and I want to make sure I'm around, and I make a tiny house. Also... You could probably go all over the country if you had one that's not movable. Um, generally, though, I've read, and I don't know if this is true, but I tried knowing you were coming on the show to read up as much as I can, and there's a lot of information on tiny houses. And, again, I, I, I would stress that you'd have to go where you, know, where you live and find out the zoning. Uh, but generally, are they under 400 feet? What's the size, the general, like, average? I'm yes. sure they can find different sizes. But okay, is there and a, you know, number that what's the difference between a, a what you'd call a regular tiny house and a real tiny house? <laughs> right. Well, and it's funny. I was listening to the gentleman um, in the interview before me, and one thing he said really, um, really for the general real estate goes for tiny houses now as well, and tiny living. Um, and I wrote down that he said it's a confusing time with mixed messaging. And it, it really is because we're on the we're on the cusp here of or on the threshold of a movement that has been going on for about 20 years um, with a lot of different kind of touch points to an industry that is being formed and standardized. So um, and a lifestyle actually that is also being defined. So basically, right now, a tiny house, the legal definition we have for it is that it is under 400 square feet, and that's defined by something called the International Residential Code, the IRC, which um, builders would be very familiar with. So, um, and actually, we have an appendix to that um, document, which is called Appendix Q. It was adopted in um, 2018, and that defines very specifically a tiny house on foundation. And the good news is literally three weeks ago now, that um, uh, document has also been appended again, and now we have a standard, what's called model legislation for tiny houses that are built on wheels that are movable. Like so a basically, you could actually yeah, move yeah. your. Let's say you had a couple of kids and they were adults, 
I mean, you could actually move your house all over. Well, you're talking about me, Dottie, because I bought my tiny house in 2019 and lived in it in Florida, which is where I planned on spending the rest of my years. Um, and uh, and then COVID started. And so um, after seven months of being in Florida with my kids being up in Pennsylvania, I decided that wasn't working, especially with a new grandson I hadn't even met yet because oh, wow. of COVID. So I hired a transporter who put my house on his tow. He towed my house a thousand miles and I now live in central Pennsylvania. And my plan was to return to Florida as soon as COVID uh, is over. We thought that would be maybe six months. Well, obviously, well, I, I'm still in Central I think we were all wrong on that one. We were all wrong on that one, right. But anyway, yes, so absolutely, the movable tiny house can be moved. Some of the smaller ones um, are actually being moved around frequently. Generally speaking, when people buy a tiny house, we're looking at maybe two to three moves during the lifetime of the house. So most most people are not planning on driving around with it, you know, behind your truck. But the house is, and this is a question we get all the time, the house is, um, the, the movable tiny houses are permanently attached to the trailer. They are built onto the trailer. So that's one of the key distinctions, for instance, between a tiny house and, and what we know as a manufactured home or a mobile home or a park model. Some park models are also permanently attached to trailers, but others can be, the trailer can be removed. Um, so these so are permanently those are the attached to the trailer? Yes. Yes. If, you look, yes. if you look at the trailer, it, it has what's called, um, it's got metal um, oh, I can't remember the name of them, but they're bolts. That's what they are. They're metal bolts. And once you do this, what's called the subfloor of the trailer, these trailers are specifically designed. Um, a professional tiny house builder is is getting a trailer that is that is specifically designed um, in terms of weight distribu distribution and structural integrity to put a tiny house on it. So um, and so then it is permanently attached and bolted to it, and then the whole package is waterproofed and there's all different things that are done to it can you can you can you hold that thought for two minutes we have a quick commercial i just want to pick up on that thought i just don't want to interrupt you during a commercial we'll be right back we're talking about tiny houses you're not going to want to miss this you might want to even buy one we'll be right back after the break Keep your body moving with powerful nutrients to support your joints and overall mobility. Invite Health is here to save the day and your body with the best-selling Cartilage HX. Cartilage HX helps to maintain the health of your cartilage and promotes flexibility and mobility. This powerful formulation provides a patented form of type 2 collagen called UC2 that has been shown in clinical studies to promote joint comfort and strong, healthy bones. Just listen to what some Invite Health customers in the tri-state area are saying about Cartilage HX. I had a problem with my left knee and had to take baby steps going up the stairs. I'm almost normal now. Miracle! When I climb the stairs, my knees no longer hurt. 
Stay active with the help of Cartilage HX. Buy one bottle, get the other free, plus free shipping today. Call 800-673-2345 now to order. Again, that's 800-673-2345. 800-673-2345. Make a difference in your life that impacts you for years to come by traveling to Israel this year. Sign up today for the thrill and excitement of visiting the Holy Land this November with nationally syndicated media host Dr. Sebastian Gorka and renowned author and filmmaker Dinesh D'Souza. Visit StandWithIsraelTour.com for details and to register. On the tour, you'll step into history with mouth-watering cuisine, picturesque scenes, and magnificent people while visiting over 40 iconic sites and sacred places you've only read and heard about for years. Pray at the Western Wall in Jerusalem, float in the mineral-rich Dead Sea, and take a boat onto the middle of the Sea of Galilee as you experience something transforming in your life. Call 855-565-5519 to reserve your spot. Again, visit StandWithIsraelTour.com to book your trip today. You know, a business that epitomizes strong family values and tradition over many years is Pat Lafreda Meat Purveyors. Established in 1922 in Manhattan's Meatpacking District, Pat Lafreda Meat Purveyors has been an institution in the New York restaurant scene for three generations. If you've experienced a delicious cut of meat at a premier restaurant within the tri-state area, odds are it was a Pat Lafreda product. Pat Lafreda supplies over 1,600 restaurants a day. You don't keep up that pace unless you're on top of your game. Talk about a true New York success story. Today, Lafreda Meat Purveyors operates two of the nation's largest state-of-the-art facilities in North Bergen, New Jersey, keeping to their local New York, New Jersey roots. Go online to Lafreda.com. It's L-A-F-R-I-E-D-A.com. Continuing with Eye on Real Estate, your premier source for real estate information. Here's the host of Eye on Real Estate, the vice chair of Douglas Elliman, Dottie Herman. Back with Betsy Bobo, sales director for Liberation Tiny Homes. And this is uh, a lot of us. It's, it's actually, I'm actually client relations for, for Liberation Tiny Homes. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's get that what they role. gave me. So. Yeah, I mean, I could mm-hmm. do like two hours on this whole thing because it's it's I, I have pages and pages I've been reading and reading and I did see a show on TV, I I told you. Now you say you moved into a tiny home what, three years ago? Correct. Okay, so what was that like for you? And like what you, I understand why you did it. Your 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 son was far away but when you first moved in it like i mean about how big yeah when i first right when i first moved in it was it was more of a lifestyle choice for me because i needed to downsize i'm in a certain age demographic where i was moving toward fixed income and um and with very little retirement savings so i was going to need to continue working so basically it was a lifestyle change and um and it was wonderful because it took me a year and a half between the time I put my condo in Florida on sale and the time I actually was able to move into my brand new tiny house. Um, and also it was, it was a challenge finding a place where I could live in it because of all these different restrictions that we've talked a little bit about. But it, it's been wonderful. Um, I didn't have any trouble moving in and adapting into a smaller space 
the downsizing has continued. I, I still have a storage unit that I'm still downsizing and, you know, going through stuff. But it's been wonderful. And, and if anything, I'm planning on going smaller. I, I'm My house is 24 uh, by eight and a half feet, about 200 square feet, and I'm, I'm, my next house is going to be significantly smaller. So, um, so it's a great lifestyle for people that find it um, in, interesting. Well, yes, and I, I was reading all these statistics about um, that. I have 688,000 homes, tiny homes, are sold every month in the United States. Wow, um, and that's a lot. It says, you know, <laughs> Yeah, and of course, and that these people have more money because they they were able to save a lot more money. Um, exactly, and yeah, it that, uses that about seven percent of the energy that traditional houses use. Correct. And my my um, energy bill was about fifteen dollars um, in Florida when I lived down there. I don't know what it is now because my energy is included in my site rental, but I imagine it's about the same ten to fifteen dollars a month. Yeah, it says 85% of tiny homes operate at above average energy efficiency. I mean, it's all good. And, um, of course, like you said, some built on permanent foundations and some are built on trailers and can be hit. So there's a lot of options. And it says some homes might have septic tanks and solar power power panels. Um, Some don't. And the average height of a tiny home is about eight feet. Seven. Uh, no, no, no. Second, the 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 standard height of a tiny home is thirteen point five feet because that is what is allowed. Um, so that's the height. Five. The width is eight point five. Yeah, the width. Oh, of the, the width is eight point five. So correct. So if someone's considering, or someone, you know, because I think it's just starting to really. I know it's been around. But I mean, especially in the New York area, I think it's a wonderful option. And how did you? So, how did you? Like, what made you decide? And where did you go to find information out? And how did you? Yes. And can you buy them? Do you buy them? Do you have them built? Is there a place that you can buy them at, or get some information? Can you give us all that? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So basically, first of all, the best thing to do is to use your online resources. And you can, um, there are builders now who are specializing in tiny house builds. The movement began with a lot of what we call DIYers. So a lot of people built their own. But these days you've got reputable, excuse me, reputable builders that have built dozens, if not several hundred tiny houses. And they are, they're building. That's, I work for a builder. They've, um, Liberation Tiny Homes has been building for about seven years. And wow. they've built over 130 homes, and they've got an extremely good reputation across the country with homes that are going out and being lived in and used. So the one, the one real keynote is that you want a reputable builder. And obviously, when you've got a trending market, which tiny houses is, you can, you know, you know this with real estate. You tend to get some that may not be so reputable. So that's something you want to be really careful about. Um, you need a builder who is not just that somebody who's built houses their whole career and now decided yesterday to build a tiny house because there are certain structural considerations when you drive or ride in a tiny house excuse me when you tow a tiny house down a road the tiny house 
the, the physical stress that's being put on that house is equivalent to a combination of a hurricane, a tornado, and an earthquake. So basically, wow. going 60 miles an hour, that house has to be structurally um, solid, and if it's built well, it will be. It will withstand and do fine with those kind of pressures. But but you see, it's a, it's a special. It is a definitely a special build. Um, so you want to go to someone as, who's not built the first one in his life or her life? Probably somebody probably who specializes not. in doing that. <laughs> um, and now, as far as information goes, if you Google anything with tiny house and then your key terms, if you want to buy one, if you want to um, rent one. If you want to, Airbnb, for instance, has just put a special um, search, search function for tiny houses. So if you want to try out a tiny house, which I personally would highly recommend, if you're thinking about the lifestyle, go ahead and rent one for a week and, and live in it and see how it goes. Um, so you can do that? A, you can rent absolutely. a tiny house? For, yes, Airbnb has many of them. Yes, that's a great way to do it. Oh, that's a wonderful idea because before you do it, just make sure that you can handle it. Um, yes, and then so how I, you I know you're, you're... Go ahead. So how did you first, in other words, now, so if there, is there, besides for your Google and going, is there any rep, you know, is there, are there, do you find a local builder or like could I find a builder by you? I mean, where do you Absolutely. find the builders? Would it be local, or are there certain builders that you would find that have it done depends. like or the builder that did yours? Yeah, our builder, well, my builder was in Central Florida, and I did end up in Central Florida. However, the builder I work for, Liberation Tiny Homes, we get calls every day. I'm first point of contact for any inquiry calls. We get calls from all over the country and even internationally. So these okay. houses, you know, again, these houses can be transported. And they are transported across the United States, and they can also be shipped internationally. So how do we get in touch with you? Liberation Tiny Homes, um, if you just go on our website, liberationtinyhomes.com, um, it's a very good place to start because they have a full-service website. So they show you the houses, the models, the builds. We do some consulting for tiny living. We give you information on your site, your financing. Um, and that's what you want. You know, you want to find someplace like that that has a full service that's going to help you with all of these different decisions you're talking about. Okay, we're going to post that. So it's liberationtinyhomes.com? Dot com. Yep, absolutely. And the other resource, which I would love it if you could post, is called the Tiny Home Industry Association. And that's Home Industry Association, and that's the industry association. They have all sorts of resources answering all the questions you've asked, and then they also do advocacy training for people that would like to work with their local officials to make their communities more tiny friendly. So that's a wonderful resource. Um, you know, Betsy, you're, the rents in New York City are up to over $5,000 a month, okay? So we yes, have people that, funny. you know, okay, that's, that's, I'm not kidding. It's just prices have gotten so out of hand, and people are looking for alternatives. And when I saw a show and then I started reading about this, I said, hey, not that it's for everyone, but this is a great, great 
idea for certain people. And of course, they have to be built right. And um, it was since we know that your the company you do work for has built homes, and they they you know they can buy all from them if they can go to that website and get that information and then call you, and you would give them. Absolutely, so, and I will I will talk to them. I'll talk to them about their interests first, and then um, I get calls, um, I would say, several times a month from people in New York City itself that are looking for those possibilities. Now, I will say there are limited possibilities at this time, but the more we can have people interested and educated and do the advocacy, how many infill lots does New York City have? Probably about a million where you've got a vacant lot that is not being used, it already has hookups, it has electric, it has water. Let's put tiny houses throughout New York City. That would be wonderful throughout all the urban areas. It's happening a lot in other urban areas in the country. So there's all sorts of potential. Oh, there's so much. And what, I mean, I, I know this is difficult in the sense that just like houses, some have more features than others. But can you give me an idea of a range, like of, of like tiny houses, like, you know, of a range that they go for? I, I know that would depend right. on the size. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, right now if you Google, I just Google it right before the show, and the average that they're quoting, it's a little bit low because the market has gone so crazy, you know, with the building supplies and everything. But we're talking probably for a house that's between 200 and 400 square feet, anywhere from a well-built house now we're talking, anywhere from 70. Our, our lowest um, affordable model is 70,000, and our upper models, we're going up into the 125. Um, and there, and that you get a home that is a Betsy, you know, I have to, built. We're coming to the end of the show. I'm going to ask you, okay. I hope you'll come back again because there's so much information. So I'm going to Thank call you, you and you'll come back again and we'll, finish, we'll continue talking about this. Thank you so much. I learned a lot and I want you to definitely come back again. My listeners are going to want to hear from you. And I'll post those that information. Have a great weekend and thanks so much. We'll be back, everyone. Have a great weekend. The weather's beautiful. We'll be back next week. Ion Real Estate with Dottie Herman is sponsored by Citizens Bank NA. New York City.